Welcome to Coffee with Catholic Workers, a podcast about and from the Catholic Worker Movement. I'm Theo. I've been a Catholic worker around the Midwest and the West Coast since 2010. And I'm Lydia. I'm also a Catholic worker, mostly from Chicago, but currently uh, temporarily displaced into Iowa. I've been a, a Catholic worker in at Emmaus House Catholic Worker in Chicago since about 2012. Today we're really excited to be bringing you an interview with Joanne Kennedy uh, of the New York City Catholic Worker scene. She spent time in Los Angeles and Des Moines before making her way to the Big Apple, uh, where she's now the editor of the Catholic Worker newspaper. So we're happy we can share some of Joanne's story and insights with you and hope you enjoy hearing from her as much as we did. Great. Well, thanks, Joanne, for agreeing to talk to us today. We're, we're super excited for having this podcast get going and just being able to hear different people's stories and sort of share them um, with, with more people. Um, so could maybe you share a little bit about yourself and how you initially got involved with The Catholic Worker? Uh, sure. So um, I am a Californian by birth. I grew up in Southern California, close to L.A., right on the L.A. Orange County border. Um, and uh, I had a friend from college who discovered The Catholic Worker she was a little bit older than me. And so she, after she was done with college, she was sort of, um, uh, she was a, like a somebody in the Catholic liturgy world in LA. And she discovered liturgy at the Catholic Worker and she really loved it. And so she kept telling me that I should meet her friends. And I was like, I don't want to meet your weird hippie friends. And so then um, I actually, after college, I had like a, a skiing accident, ironically, and I was on crutches and I couldn't work. And she came to my house one day and she basically kind of kidnapped me. She was like, just get in the car, shut up. And then she drove me to the kitchen downtown in LA. And so the first time I ever worked the soup line, I was on crutches, which is super insane. Um, but I like got the stool and had the bread job. So but she was, of course, correct, um, and and I really did enjoy the people I met at the Catholic Worker, and I was really um, kind of captivated by what felt like the truth. It was both the works of mercy, the direct assistance, but also the cultural um, critique, that you're not just doing the works of mercy to feel good about yourself. You're also decrying the fact that it exists, and you'd really like to put yourself out of business. So, um, so I loved it and I just kept hanging out and hanging out. Um, and I would like, you know, come to Wednesday night liturgies and go to parties and do all the fun things and, you know, come to the Saturday morning kitchen in various conditions of sleeplessness and hungoverness. Um, but then I was moving along with my life and I decided to go to law school and Jeff Dietrich kind of read me the riot act. He was like, the world has plenty of lawyers. We don't need more of them. We need more Catholic workers. I think you could do this. And I was like, you don't know me, <laughs> even though, of course, he did. But um, as a as a peace offering, I said, OK, I'm going to go to law school for a year and then I will come back and live in the house at in L.A. and like give it a try for the summer. Right. Like I will do mm -hmm. law school. I will see what that is. I will come back and do the summer program. I will see what that is. And I had a great time in law school. I made a lot of 
friends. I, you know, did fine in school. I wasn't like top of my class, but I did fine. You know, it was, I really enjoyed it. I had every intention of returning, but I did live in the house for that summer. And, um, I did realize what Jeff had been trying to tell me, which was that there were a lot of things about life at the Catholic worker, which were not a big adjustment for me because I grew up in a big family. I have nine siblings. So the idea of privacy was like not a problem for me when I, you know, the, the way the summer internship in LA works, you like share with your other summer interns, how's the experience going? And people are like, I don't know, it's really hard for me to have no privacy. And I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like I like I only had my own bedroom ever when I was like in law school. Um, so yeah, I just, yeah, 15 people use the bathroom. Half of them are gross or don't clean up. That's how life is, right? Like whatever, that's sort of what family is, right? So I just gradually began to realize that it was not an adjustment for me in the way that it was for some people. And I was like taking it for granted. And then we were doing Bible study. We were doing um, Chad Myers, Finding the Strong Man. And uh, we did the Calling of the Rich Young Man story. And I just, I knew in that moment that it would never be as easy as it was then. Not that it was super easy, but it would only get harder to like give up, to change course, for lack of a better way to describe it. So I decided then to drop out of law school and to like pursue a life in the Catholic worker. And uh, so I still had to go back to Kansas City where I was going to law school and I, I worked for a little bit, but I visited Catholic workers all through the Midwest. And then I ended up moving to Des Moines and was there for two and a half years at the Catholic worker. And then I moved to New York and I've been at the Catholic worker here ever since. So the whole thing is probably dangerously close to 30 years now like probably 26 or 27 years since I first encountered the Catholic worker in LA. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's such a good point of it gets harder mm-hmm. to sort of drop things. And like the more that things are tied down into career or accumulating things, all of a sudden that gets to be a little more complicated for joining. Agreed. And in fact, if law school had been free, it might've been a different choice. But like knowing that I would have to go further into debt to finish law school and that that would be would create a kind of untenable condition once I finished that that's part of why I had to stop right there. Right. Because I it's not like I didn't like law school. I really enjoyed it. And in fact, the law school hired me to be a tutor for the year after I dropped out. Like and I stayed in that milieu and and it turned out to be useful because when I lived in Des Moines, we had a kid who got in trouble like on the New York or on the Missouri Des Moines border. And I I was able to like call my friends in Kansas city. I was like, I need a Spanish speaking drug lawyer uh, for an arrest in like whatever County it was. And uh, my friend was like, give me 15 minutes. And then he called me back. He was like, here's your guy. I was like, that is probably the reason I went to law school right there for this one phone call. But. Funny. You know, since we're on the subject, I, Nowadays, you don't even have to go to law school to get crazy student debt. Uh, do you think that that like has, I, mean, I guess I'm asking both of you here, like, do you think that has affected the Catholic worker and folks being able to come to the movement? Like if college isn't free, you know? Yeah, I don't know. You can go first if you want, Lydia, but. Um, yeah, I don't know. So, I mean, our house in Chicago is a little different because we have the ability to work 
full time here. And so mm-hmm. we do have a significant number of people with a lot of debt. Um, and in some ways, I know for some people, it's actually been easier here because our living expenses are so low. Uh, right, Everyone's contributing part of their income to have the house run. We don't run off of any donations. Um, but the cost of living in Chicago is so high <laughs> that um, that it's actually been the Catholic worker has been financially more advantageous for people with school debt than not being in the worker. Um, and I know that's not true of all houses and it's sort of our, our unique experience here. Yeah, I mean, I think because I'm part of a community with this really giant memory, right? I mean, there are still people who are active members of our community who came, who dropped out of college and came in the 70s, right? Who had a very different experience and most of them didn't live in the house they could rent apartments in our neighborhood for 50 bucks a week or something, right? Like the economics have shifted so radically and not just like in our neighborhood because of gentrification, but the economics around college as well. And so like when I hear you describe that community, Lydia, there's a a way in which you guys are offering hospitality to a certain debt ridden population, right? Like, right? Like you are actually affording them the chance to work on that debt by not having high living expenses because they're not trying to pay a mortgage or or, or really expensive rent, right? Um, so, but I think, of course, that that debt has really limited people's options, right? So like if you have the choice of going to AmeriCorps and working off five grand of your debt or going to the Catholic worker and actually just like getting into trouble because you can't pay anything. Um, yeah, it's, of course, how can you expect people and, you know, who might want to one day have a credit rating to do anything else, right? It's very hard. But I have always wished that we could actually develop a kind of radical training on student loans because I did, of course, have some undergraduate debt as well. And one of the things, I mean, I learned a lot about about student debt, even on the small level. So even at my maximum, I probably still only had like $40,000 in debt. But like, you know, if you pay 20 bucks a month, even though you don't work back your principal, you're not technically like in, uh, like uh, I'm trying to make sure I don't use the wrong like technical legal words, but you're like not in default. If you're, even if it's not even close to your payment, right? If you're paying something, you're not ignoring it entirely. If you couldn't do that for like 25 years, then they like can no longer collect the full amount or that used to be the truth. I mean, I'm sure that the the way that the student debt community has grown and the way that debt collectors have grown, I'm sure they're working on that. But that we, sh- we can like we should come up with a guide of like sort of how to fight student debt to help people to survive it. Like if you're really I mean, the, you, you will screw up your credit rating and you will you know, never qualify for a mortgage, but you can uh, survive without paying all that money um, and and like exist in a place, uh, not entirely outside of money, but outside of the full capitalist swing. Um, but we don't crowdsource that information for each other very well, I don't think. And there's definitely a generation gap of people who don't think about it anymore and people who are like really worried about it and thinking about it constantly. I think there also is this impact with that credit rating of I've seen at times in in houses, people who are ready to leave the Catholic worker and can't because they don't have a credit rating. And so 
then are sort of stuck in this situation where it's like, yes, there's a place to be um, that makes sense, but that's not not exactly ideal to have people sort of stuck in a Catholic yeah. worker when they are are ready to no longer be in community. Resentment much? Right. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> terrible. And it's bad for the rest of everybody else, too. Yeah, I think, right, especially because most rentals now require a credit check and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's a problem. It's a thing. Um, in, in getting into the Catholic worker, what were some of the things that really drew you in, the things that you found most valuable about the movement that caused you to sort of have this life course change? I do think it felt like the truth, like the closest thing to, and not, you know, it's pretty good at, the movement's fairly good at admitting its um, failures, at least paying that lip service. Um, but yeah, again, this idea that that the corporal works of mercy are imperative, right? You you see someone before you in need, you do what you can to assist. But also the what I think of as the spiritual works of mercy, which are, you know, admonishing the sinner. And for me, that's not just about, you know, telling the government to stop, you know, paying for war, but also for analyzing why we have food to give away when people need food, right? Because we all know it's just a, distribution problem, right? The food exists in the world. All the things we kind of need in the world do exist. We just are terrible at handing them out. So part of that analysis in the, in the spiritual works of mercy is to look at why why do we have and others don't? And, and what can we do? What can we actually do to put ourselves out of business? I mean, um, I don't I think we are all sort of hoping for that in a way, but we don't we don't all work toward it in the way that we might be able to. Um, because, you know, it's uh, it's one more thing on top of, you know, trying to keep the boat floating. Um, but I think that is inherent in the Catholic worker ideal. I mean, I think Peter Morin did not actually want there to be a ton of houses of hospitality. He wanted Christ rooms in everybody's houses and and farms where there's no unemployment, <laughs> you know. Newsflash for Peter Morin, a lot of people don't want to work on a farm. It's like a lot of hard work and a lot of people don't have the skills and a lot of people can't also, right? So it's not a simple solution, but like he didn't imagine, you know, a sort of Catholic charities model, which we don't either, but but we can sometimes get sucked in, I think. Trying to do the most good for the most people, right? Like, but not always having a longer view. You kind of stop your, or did you have something else? No, I was just going to say there was one other thing that I liked about the worker, which is I think that, again, it's not perfect, but it's pretty good at making a place for everyone. Like if you if you desire it, if you want to be part of the community, everybody doesn't have to do the same thing. And certainly like in New York, we're, we're like, these are the things that we do. How? Which of those things do you feel like you could do? And sometimes people make up a job of their own. So, like, it was never a job to just be the person who stands at the door, but that's a job that Felton made for himself. And I feel like if that's what's been Felton's skill set, we can try to figure out how to make that be an important part of the community, too, right? So, or if what you can do is answer the phone when the house shift is busy, that's a real help to people. That's no one would ever say that that's a job, right? But, like, we're trying all the time to figure out what people can do to be part of the community, even if it makes it mushy, but that's more generous 
in some ways than a sort of capitalist model of efficiency and productivity and purpose and things like that. And I like that about the Catholic worker. It has that kind of flexibility in a way. You kind of, we kind of got distracted from your story. You ended telling us about making it to Des Moines for a couple of years, but not getting to New York City. Do you want to tell us about that? And then also maybe uh, what the work looks like uh, in New York? In New York? Sure. So um, I ended up, I love Des Moines. I like to say that in LA, I learned about the Catholic worker. Like Jeff and Catherine are good teachers of the like, sort of uh, like a primer of Catholic worker life. These are the values of the Catholic worker, et cetera. Um, and then in Des Moines, I learned a kind of really raw, like natural hospitality. Um, I was there with Carla and um, Ed Bloomer and Norman Sierra. That was like the heart of our community. And it was really great. Um, but I was the only person in that community at that time who had a, like uh, attended college. Since then, Carla has gone to college and, of course, has a teaching degree. But um, so as a result, Frank Cordero, who was a priest at the time, was like, you have to do the newsletter. And I was like, uh, what now? I don't do newsletter. That's not my thing. Right. So but and so four times a year uh, or maybe a little bit more, we I would like go to the parish where he was working and we would like work on the newspaper. And I was um, unhappy with the sort of quality I was working at on that level. And I just realized that Des Moines was really uh, like fun and comfortable for me, but I was in no way challenging myself about the philosophy of the work. And I'm a little bit lazy. I need, like, I'm not good at like sitting down and reading Solzhenitsyn or, you know, somebody like that to sort of beef up my understanding of Dorothy's love of the Russians and why small is beautiful, according to Schumacher, right? Like, I know myself, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to like watch TV or something else. So <clears throat> I started to look for ways to push myself on that level. And I came to visit uh, New York. I was already friends with Carmen because I'd met him in LA, ironically. When I came to New York, I visiting, I suddenly understood that there were all these people who would um, <laughs> not all, like sometimes more aggressively than others, like press you on your ideas, right? Like, or really sharpen your understanding of the ideas. So, and, and this was really um, something I was seeking, right? So I could better understand why would I have so radically changed my life? It's not just about how it feels. It has to really have that robust critique. And so um, New York, I was drawn to New York for the, the sort of sharpening of my understanding of a societal and, and cultural critique. And uh, yeah, the rest is history. So, right, I mean, once you've been here, you sort of know that the, that is a little bit, uh, I don't want to say unique to New York, because I know there are other communities that do it, but the like, the depth of our bench of people who will press up on you and make you think about it is a little bit... Um, unusual. So I, I have really appreciated that. And then, you know, I got married and had kids. So I pretty much stayed here. I like to tease that I'm always heading east. So next stop will be London. But um, but uh, so far, that's not happening. New Yorkers are not exactly known for holding back. So that, that's a little bit different uh, <laughs> atmosphere and environment than, you know, Midwest nice. Yeah. And even not within just the Catholic worker, too. I mean, the Catholic worker does reflect the city in some ways, but I've really appreciated 
um, the robust debate in the city. You know, like at, when we were talking to the people in the Midwest about, um, you know, uh, sort of white supremacy and like we live in a city that also has like very powerful black leaders. So like, it's very easy for us to be like, we, you know, we can follow what black leaders are doing, right? Like, but we say that, like, we could take that for granted. Al Sharpton calls a rally, you can show up, right? Like not everybody has an opportunity for that. Um, and so I have really appreciated, and, and like, we have such a diverse community in New York that there are people who don't like, like there's, Al Sharpton has opposition inside the black community, right? Like there's all the flavors, right? And, and, uh, and I realized that that's something too that I really have appreciated and sometimes take for granted, um, which is very um, sort of self-centered and New Yorky. But um, I appreciate like that dynamic too. You know, Puerto Ricans and Dominicans and other Spanish-speaking immigrants have very different feelings than some Caribbean immigrants. So the tapestry of all the different um, sort of needs and desires has been is good for my brain to keep trying to think it all through. And the work in New York, Theo, you know, um, so we have two houses of hospitality, two blocks away from each other in what is now called the East Village. And then we have a 63 acre farm about an hour and a half north of the city in Marlboro. And um, because we've been here for so long, I mean, We've had the property on East First Street since 1965, but not really occupied until maybe 68-ish. Um, and we've had the property on East Third Street since 1973, but not really occupied until 1975-ish. Um, the work comes to us, like it, which there are times when I sort of like envy a little bit, like a new Catholic worker where you get to like look at your community and look around and say, what could we add to this community? What does the Holy Spirit want us to bring here? But that's never or, or very rarely the dynamic in New York. Like it is, it's just sort of its own like self-perpetuating machine. And even though um, we've seen changes over the years and like who comes to the door and who needs what and what we should do, we do kind of run on inertia. It's sort of the burden and the blessing, right? Um, and uh, so, the work is the same as many Catholic worker houses. It's, you know, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, but a lot of it's um, accompaniment, really, right? It's not, not everybody who comes to our door is homeless. A lot of people just need community. Uh, and that's people who come to volunteer and people who come out of need. We all actually, in many ways, come out of the same need, which is the need to be connected to other human beings. Um, and so, in some ways that's, maybe that's the work of every Catholic worker. Um, but sometimes I really feel that, that it's conversation, it's seeing each other as humans, it's it's knowing each other's names, um, stuff like that. And, and I think, um, you know, we've talked about moving to a different neighborhood that has more poor people. We've talked about like, should we be smaller? You know, these are all good things for us to constantly debate about. And, and check in about, um, but it's complicated. If we, I mean, first of all, there are there are people who still do depend on us. So we can't, what does it mean to leave them behind, right? Then we can't take with us. It's also true that if we were going to relocate, 
there's only one way for us to relocate and that's to buy property. And if we're gonna buy property, we're about to gentrify a neighborhood. We're about to be a majority white group of people buying property and chances are likely to be a neighborhood of much more diversity. And we're gonna throw down a bunch of money and buy a building and then move in a bunch of people who aren't from that neighborhood. So what is the impact on the neighborhood we're going to? This is another like dynamic of the question. Um, so when we get to those like hard pass questions, like what is the right path forward, then we sort of usually double down on what we already do, which is stay in the neighborhood, continue to resist cheek and jowl with what is, you know, sort of unbridled capitalism. Because there are still some people who are poor in our neighborhood, but yeah, I mean, the we're also up against this argument about like, could you do more somewhere else? What is, but is our goal to do more, right? Is that is that actually the Catholic workers' agenda to do feed as many people as possible? I don't know that. I'm not convinced of that. Um, and then at the farm, you know, we just try to. In many ways, I feel like we try to maintain a sort of toehold on this idea that we have to remain connected to the land. Tommy is amazing up at the farm. I think he does really an astonishing amount of work for being like one farmer. Um, but we also do hospitality because in the same way, we've been there so long that the people, the town will be, bring people to the house. Um, when there's somebody who's like in need up in Marlboro, they end up bringing them to Peter Moore Farm. So we have like a small house of hospitality on the farm in addition to the farming. I don't know, Theo, you, you're visiting, so you got fresh eyes. I don't know if that describes the work or not, but I mean, we do, one thing that's different than some other models, like we do, we have a lot of what I think of as long-term hospitality. You know, the city of New York has a very robust shelter system, which is its own, you know, terrifying hall of mirrors but um the people who end up living with us because they don't have somewhere else to live are people who usually cannot access that system so they're either under documented in some way um either because of their migration history or because of mental illness they can't like reconstruct their own story enough to establish their identity and so they stay with us for many many years right 10, 15, 20 years, they'll, they'll live with us until their health is in such a way that we can't care for them anymore. So that's not uh, hospitality, right? When I moved into the house, it was Jimmy's house. Jimmy had been living at St. Joseph House since the year I was born. So yeah, I'm moving into his house and Mr. Wong's house, and he's just letting me help out. Um, and that there's a lot of Catholic worker houses that don't have that experience of longevity. And New York is is unique in that way. Yeah, New York has a lot going on. And then there's also the work of the paper. Um, mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about how you got involved with the paper and what that is like? Sure. So um, the paper is really, um, it's just kind of always a thread running through the life of the house in New York. We are literally constantly either um, doing the editorial side of the paper or doing the mailing prep side of the paper because we do seven issues a year as soon as one is finished the next one is basically coming so which means we like yeah we have editorial meetings just yeah sort of 
they're not like, there's a schedule that we make out for a whole year's worth, a May to May calendar. Um, and there's basically, you know, there's like 30 editorial meetings in a year, so, um, or more. So there's almost, you know, one every other week, sort of actually more frequent than that. So it's very much um, a part of the life of the community. It's also, um, for the most part, like optional. So like, if you don't, if you hate the paper, if you don't want to be part of it, you don't have to, and you can just la la la, la you know, like pretend it's not there. However, it is imperative. It's a very important part of our financial existence as well. Like in many ways, the paper is the cottage industry of the Catholic worker in New York. Um, and uh, I mean, I've never, I have always resisted the like, here's how much the paper costs. And here's how much like we get in after every time an issue of the paper goes out, but there's a discernible bump paper goes out and then people remember to send us donations. But, you know, that's not the, it's not strictly um, relational. Like we certainly get money outside of the mailings of the paper too, which are in, integral to our survival. But, but one of the reasons we resist that is because that's not the only reason we print the paper. You know, like we, it's part of the spiritual works of mercy. Um, so, so that's really why we print it. But also, by the way, it helps to pay for everything. So it's in itself, right? It pays for itself too. Um, in terms of how I got involved, I mean, after a little while being here, I think somebody said, you want to come to an editorial meeting? And I was like, uh, I don't know, do I? And then I went to editorial meetings for quite some time, um, just like reading the copy and sort of weighing in on what I liked or didn't like about submissions or and talking about what I wish we had articles about. Um, and then um, I had a couple of friends who became managing editors and then they were moving along and I just sort of got to the point where somebody was like, maybe you should do this job. But the one part of the job that I never, I didn't really want to do because I had done it in Des Moines and I didn't think I was particularly good at it is laying out the paper. So I agreed to do like the part of the managing editor that sort of runs down the dates of the like, when are the meetings, when are the due dates, sending the stuff to the printer, like sort of keeping on top of that part of it, but I don't do the artistic layout part. And so um, in my tenure, I've always like split that job with other people who do that part. And sometimes um, they help my, with my job too, it depends. So, so actually I've been the man, one of the managing editors for a very long time now because um, I, you know, partly because I've just stayed here and partly because we've been waiting for someone else to come along who wants to do the terrible job that I do. Cause it's very much of a thankless job because basically you just hound people for their articles. Um, but we've had many turnovers of people who do layout in that time that I've been doing it. Um, but I, yeah, I look forward to, I'm trying to get Amanda to take it over, but uh, she's not a fool. So I doubt she's going to volunteer for the ugly part of this job, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's been almost 20 years that I've been managing editor, you which is very long. Being, we usually have a lot more turnover. What'd you say? You, uh, you talked about it being part of the spiritual works of mercy. Mm -hmm. Can you say more about that? So the spiritual works of mercy are, you know, um, admonish the sinner. That's one of my favorites. I always remember that one. But also instruct the ignorant, 
um, right? Like there's a, and they are all kind of, um, maybe not all, but more than half of them, I feel like are about um, sort of truth telling, even if it's, um, you know, helping somebody understand what they've done that's not good, but also um, like in terms of the paper, we think of it in the way that Peter Morin said that the paper is supposed to announce the good news. So we think like that's actually, it's like the duty of delight. That's one of our our jobs too, is to put things in the paper that will help people have hope because we're very much aware too that we have a luxury it, Community can be challenging, but it's also a great gift. And a lot of people who get our paper don't have the support of community in the way that we do. And so the paper makes them feel not alone in what they think about in the world or how they view what's happening in the world. And and not just, you know, of course we know that's true for our prisoner readers, um, and we have quite a few, but there's also, you know, regular people just live in their life feeling unconnected to the world of the Catholic worker or even the world of Catholic leftism, you know, and, and we get a lot of letters saying, thank you for just being out there. Thank you for just keep printing. Thank you for, thank you for helping me um, learn these stories or, or exposing me to new ideas. So that we are really aware of our readership in that way. And, and yeah. They, you know, people say, I've never heard my priest say Black Lives Matter. Or, I've never heard my priest um, talk about nuclear weapons, right? So we, we really feel strongly that part of our duty in the paper, I think. So you, you mentioned you kind of want to be announcers and not just denouncers, as Peter said. What, what other thoughts go into what content ends up in the paper, like kind of on a philosophical, ideological level. I mean, you have to balance like the tradition of the worker, but like thought continues to be clarified after mm -hmm. timers are gone and stuff like that. You know, what goes into all that? So, I mean, first of all, I sometimes marvel at what comes before us, right? Like this is one of the things that I think also New York takes a little bit for granted is that people send us articles, you know, like we sometimes we do go and solicit things, but a lot of a shocking number of things get sent to us without us having to work for it. Um, so we're very, very lucky in that way. It gives us things to choose from because, um, you know, maintaining copy for seven issues a year could be hard too. In fact, I mean, sometimes we're like, oh, we always have too much. But like, and the reverse problem is much worse, right? Like if you're just going to print big art, right? Um, but we do have a few sort of like uh, informal like tests of what should go in the paper. So we do as a rule, and then this has been a, a particular challenge for me personally, but I think it's been a good exercise. We try not to print anything that is intentionally and sort of directly in opposition to the teaching of the church. We feel like that was a line in the sand that Dorothy had, and certainly Peter had. And out of respect for that tradition, if we can avoid like, you know, really just being anathema to the church, we do. And so as regards the teachings of the church, that's a place where we really, I particularly really try to push on, let's announce the good news. 
So there's lots of bishops saying terrible things. We do not need to magnify that, right? We don't want to hide it, but we also aren't, that's not announcing. So let's go find some bishops who are not terrible people. Not because that's what the whole church is, but because we're trying to announce what good news there is, right? Which also means sometimes, unfortunately, there's not a lot to print from the church, qua the church. We've enjoyed Pope Francis because he's in some ways easier to announce the good news with than his predecessor. But um, so we do, we're always looking for that. Another thing that we sometimes say is, we, we ask this question a little bit tongue in cheek. We ask if it harms the faith and morals of the readership. And what we're really thinking about is whether this article that's before us will like lead to despair or will lead people into something that's not, you know, like we, we would actually never want to provoke an act of violence, right? We would never want to um, lead people to a place where they can no longer um, see a way toward God, right? Or a way toward justice. Um, and so even though we run articles about very difficult things, we are always looking for a tone that leaves room for, I don't know, light or hope or or like, or centers human dignity. So Kathy Kelly can write some very challenging pieces about really challenging things that are happening in the world, but she is really good at also bringing the human parties, the people who are who are maybe most affected by it and their like dignity and strength in it. And, and that's kind of something Dorothy was really good at. It's a very hard skill in writing. I think a lot of people, you can't maybe learn it. Maybe you have to just have a mind for that kind of writing. But a lot of people write a piece to which we will react negatively because it's too much poverty porn sort of, or too much exploitation of somebody's suffering. But you have to center the dignity of the people in suffering at the same time. Otherwise, it's not good for the readers, right? Or for the person you're telling the story about. So it's a kind of a mushy rule, but we're always trying to like find that sweet spot. I wouldn't say that we're always successful, but. And then from time to time, we we try to look at what's missing. And I, like, I really appreciated Lincoln's sort of, I don't know, you know, people would call it a provocation, but like Lincoln's discussion about what, how the Catholic worker used to write more about anti-black racism, and then, you know, went through a period of really focusing a lot on Central and America, because that's what people in the community were deeply involved with, right? Um, and, so, and so in that way, the paper does reflect kind of what our people's, interest areas, right? Um, so it wasn't like an intentional decision to move away from the work around anti-Black racism, but as the wars in the um, in Central America rose up, there was a lot more on that, and people were visiting there, and we had more connections and wrote stories. And then as the wars in the Middle East rose up, you know, same thing, right? So his challenge, though, to think about why not was really great. It was led to great discussions in our editorial meetings, too, about like, Okay, well, what would we say about anti-black racism and what what um, what can a white like editorial ship like I, yes, I Joanne Kennedy as a white woman am not going to write about the experience of black racism like I, I don't have a firsthand experience, right? So we got to find black authors or you know like and we really talked a lot about what 
can the Catholic worker as a newspaper uniquely bring to that discussion? And that's when we sort of hit on this idea of elevating black Catholic lives, whose stories are like very much undersold inside Catholicism and in, even in, and especially perhaps inside the Catholic worker world. So we have been running stories about black Catholics in the United States in particular, right? Um, uh, as a way to sort of add um, a dimension to our understanding of Catholicism that has been absent. And uh, and we've gotten really a great response from people, lots of lots of appreciation for elevating the stories of of people's lives. So that's that was it's been um, rewarding is a cheesy word, but it's been great to 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 have had that idea and sort of wondered if it was right, and then to have received feedback that that it was a good it was a good direction to go. Yeah. I'm thinking about the paper evolving over the years. There's sort of this, this continuous topical evolution of what things to focus on, what direction to go. But then there's also sort of like this practical mechanics of it, of newspapers aren't doing so great. Mm -hmm. um, and so what does what does that look like for the Catholic worker paper um, in thinking about sort of the the decrease of both printed papers and in some ways the decrease of, of reading things for mm -hmm. news or for thought. Yeah, great question. And, and something we often um, rigorously debate, of course, um, you know, there are some people who like look at our subscription, like, you know, Dorothy had a hundred thousand subscribers or something in like the 1940s. Right. And the, and now we, we claim, you know, something like 26,000, but so, right. Like, isn't that proof, like just evidence that people don't read or whatever, but we've actually held solid around that number for like more than a decade. And I mean, I think that we, we do think of the paper as craft as well. So it is, it is yes, the organ of the Catholic worker movement, as it's called. It is a way to communicate our ideas. Um, but even the way that we lay it out, which we do still with glue and paper, and then we give it over to a woman who's like a, a you know, union member lithographer, and she like puts it into, you know, a computer program for us. Um, but and the way we prepare it to mail in our own home, we have a sort of craft attitude about it. And um, for me, it's sort of creepy to watch the world sort of move um, into this world of like everybody wants something that's like bespoke, right? Like something that's like handcrafted and amazing, right? Where the movement has always been on board with that idea, right? That that mass production and these are kind of things that are damaging to the world, to the environment, even to our, our you know, that mass consumerism that goes with it is all bad. Um, and we think of the Catholic worker paper in the tradition of craft. It is, it is um, you know, hand built in many ways. Um, and so we, it's resistance to the death of print. Does that mean it will survive? The death of print? I don't know. Have we already had people come to us and act like it's a novelty and therefore it's cool? 
Like, oh my God, you guys still print this? That's so cool. Right? Like, that's insane. But it's also, I see this, the path forward is strangely someplace there. And I don't care if it, we're never going to stop printing because there will be people in prison who will only be able to get our paper that way. Right? So for them, for all the people who can only access our paper by print, we will never stop printing until until prisoners can get newspapers online, whenever that day is, right? So we're, we're really committed to that, even if it's just something that costs us money that we just do on the side. Um, but in my experience, there are young people too who are sort of interested in something different. Now, when you talk about reading, that's a very interesting problem too. Like we, I, I always think of like, long form articles in like magazines like the Atlantic or the New Yorker or New Oxford Review. Like you're like, oh, I'm not turning the page 15 more times to finish this article. Like I can't do it, right? I'm too lazy. But we do talk about how one page of our paper might be even beyond people's like attention span anymore, right? Which is sad because the paper back in the day was five columns, like it was more. So something's changed about people's um, attitude and aptitude for consuming um, written words. So it's, uh, you know, it's stay tuned. It might mean that the Catholic Worker has shorter articles, more articles of shorter format. But one of our longest writers right now is one of our youngest writers, too, which I think is hilarious, right? Like um, our some of our older writers are getting like shorter, like more more frequent, but shorter length. And our, our longest writer is, is one of our younger writers. So it's, uh, stay tuned, right? I think it's it's interesting. I think we are really committed to keeping it printed. And that's also why we don't, um, because we don't trust ourselves a little bit and we don't trust the universe, or the consumer universe very well. We've been resisting immediately releasing a PDF because we don't want people to turn to the PDF instead of the print because um, we still value print so much. But we, we have allowed the CCRA to put up PDFs of the previous year, right? So like, we're, we're just, we have this lag. But there was a time when we would have never considered putting up PDFs. But it's obvious now the usefulness, especially in research and stuff like that. Um, but so, you know, I think it is a, it's a changing landscape and we're trying to figure out how to stay committed to our readership that is print dependent and also be in relationship with the technology to the extent that we have to, basically, if that makes sense. I don't know. We, we've gone about 45 minutes or something like that. Mm -hmm. Do we want to do if there anyone has final thoughts? I would just say that I appreciate you guys. I, I see you. I see you. I see you. Um, I see you working the Facebook channels too, or whatever they're supposed to be called, right? Like, um, I appreciate that there's a danger of uh, Catholic workers to, um, you know, a little bit be like ostrich, right? Like to like turn away from something like Facebook and Instagram and be like, it doesn't exist. And we can actually, especially in the community in New York, we can actually live our life that way and not, and like sort of be unaffected. Um, and 
I recognize personally that that's um, a little unfair. It's it's us taking advantage of our insularness, right? Like because we do have a fairly full life, and it's very interesting. And so we, but there are people looking for community who will turn to places like Facebook and Instagram, um, and who will find only certain offerings there, right? Like I appreciate that you guys are helping to flesh out what the Catholic worker is in the digital realm so that people can experience more of the breadth and depth of the Catholic worker. Um, and I, I don't want to have to do it. And so I'm really glad that you guys are. Um, and, and I think, um, I really deeply believe that the Catholic worker is like entirely the work of the Holy Spirit. So if a thing is meant to happen, it actually happens. And, and like, I, you know, the, the New York Catholic worker tried a lot of crazy things that didn't stick. Like for a while, they, they would do like a weekly, like one pager, like an 11 by 17. That was the paper for a while. I was like, that would be a total pain in the ass. That would be somebody's full-time job to like put that out every week. And like that didn't stick, right? Like, is it the Holy Spirit's work or like just the practicalities of it? But like, we've tried many things over time and the things that are really meant to work, work. And so, so carry on, you'll find the thing that is really meant. And, and uh, yeah, I think it's value added for sure. So I appreciate you. I think that probably describes our, our effort with this podcast of, you know, we figure if we throw enough things against the wall, something will stick <laughs> and maybe it's this, maybe it's something else, but mm -hmm. might as well try. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks so much, Joanne, for, for giving us some of your time and being willing to jump on here. I know Theo and I really appreciate uh, your willingness to help out with, with our experiment here. Um, it's been great to talk to you. Same, same. Thanks for, thanks for doing it. Well, that was a, a really great conversation to be able to have with Joanne. Um, it's really been super enjoyable on this uh, podcast so far just to be able to hear the stories from different Catholic workers that that I normally wouldn't be able to hear. And so it's been a lot of fun to hear them and be able to um, have this platform to, to start sharing them with other people. Yeah. I love talking to Catholic workers. It's it's a lot of fun. You know, um, this might sound kind of goofy, but you know what really resonated with me while Joanne was talking was kind of her um, discussing the paper as almost a chore that anyone would be foolish to want to be the editor of the paper. Uh, I've been. It, it feels a little bit like that for the Facebook group moderation that you and I have been doing. I, I feel like somebody needs to do it. And it's a lot of like uh, scolding people or something like that. Uh, but somebody's got to do it, I guess. Yeah, not the kind of job that people just sort of jump up, raising their hands to volunteer for, for sure. It was interesting in hearing 
more about like, the editorial process with the paper um, of, of hearing about this idea that it both is this, this communication of Catholic worker values and, and Catholic worker thought, and also this piece of the desiring to always move people towards hope. Um, I thought that was really a fascinating way of making decisions um, on what to publish or not. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that too. I'm kind of a pessimist. I'm always ready to put things down. So it's different to hear that other folks are intentionally going the opposite way there. Um, I do wonder if without enough of a good critique, there will be things inevitably missing. Um, and I think some folks might agree too, uh, particularly about like being willing to confront the church, maybe sometimes mm -hmm. difficult things. Uh, I, the New York worker are comfortable with that. And, uh, but I think there are some Catholic workers who will find that position wanting. Sure. Yeah, it was interesting of being willing to jump on other critique about the church as long as it was coming from within the church already of what other bishops were saying and, and jumping on that, but not being willing to, I guess, generate the critique um, on their own. A an interesting position for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I, Joanne spoke of the paper as they were trying to be truth-telling, and, and she spoke about um, what brought her to the movement is, she, I believe she said, it felt like the truth. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that was something that really resonated with me, and, and I think what drew me to the worker and and the way we know it to be true is to actually be like doing the Catholic worker as well. Um, mm -hmm. Just writing about it in a newspaper or something like that, but going out and doing the works of mercy. Yeah, yeah, that piece of it being true, um, I feel like comes up again and again of like somehow people come to the Catholic worker and realize that like ev everything you've learned kind of makes sense in being played out in a practical way for values um, in really messy ways, perhaps. Um, and so I, I do appreciate the intent of sort of spreading truth telling or spreading a development of the values with the paper. Um, and I guess that's sort of full circle to the development or the origins of the Catholic worker of this idea of creating a newspaper and spreading ideas that then generate this way of living. Yeah, I thought it was it was great, too, that they're intentionally thinking about imprisoned folks uh, and they're the the way they operate and what you know joanne talked about we'll never stop printing as you know until there's as long as there's somebody who needs a print copy and and that probably includes folks in, incarcerated uh i thought that was 
a great perspective that they keep in mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was really struck with a lot of the intention, the purposeful intention behind decision making. And maybe that comes with like the extensive critique of thought uh, that is the culture there. But this thought of like, okay, do we keep print or do we not? How do we decide what is printed, what is not? How do we think about gentrification? Um, how do we think about like the impact the worker has to a neighborhood? So I, I really appreciated the thought that seemed to go behind so many of those decisions. Well, it's a great interview. Very excited of uh, being able to talk with the managing editor of the paper. I feel like, you know, now that means like our podcast is legit. Um, really getting down uh, on, you know, once you're once you're in on the paper, that's like the, the real deal. Um, but another good round of things, I think next episode we're scheduled to leave the city and head out to the farm um, so that will be a, a bit of a, a shift of things to be looking at our our farming communities rather than uh, life in the big city um, thanks to everybody who has been listening uh, thanks to chris from the bloomington worker who's helping us uh, behind the scenes with some sound editing uh, and Special thanks, of course, to Joanne Kennedy for being willing to jump on here with us. We hope you join us next time.